Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gaming Broadcast, the official podcast of GamingBroadly.com. I'm your host, Jamie Dale, the main broad over at Gaming Broadly, and today we're continuing our Playing Appalachia series with Josh Howard. Josh Howard is a public historian with Passel Historical Consultants based in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. He earned his doctorate in public history from Middle Tennessee State University and really, really likes the MMORPG EverQuest 2, <laughs> which... I'm super excited. I like the laugh, by the way. <laughs> Anyone who doesn't laugh at EverQuest is no friend of mine. That's for sure. How are you doing today, Josh? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me on here. I'm really excited to talk about um, EverQuest and, and EverQuest 2 and Appalachia and all these great things. So yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. It's going to be super exciting. You are from... You're from... Virginia originally, is that right? Yeah, that's right. So um, I'm from a tiny little town, um, Clifton Forge, which is over in Allegheny County, which is in the far western side of, uh, of Virginia. Kind of lived all over Appalachia, but now I'm back um, in western Virginia where I want to be. Was your family there for a long time? Sorry to get into like the deep Appalachian <laughs> questions right away. I'm just like, tell me about your family. No, yeah. So uh, no, that's cool. That's <laughs> no fine. No intro, nothing. Uh, just family. Yeah, so my people, so to speak... Uh, most of them were in kind of the western part of Virginia, southwest Virginia, as far as we've ever known family history. Um, what I do like to tell people, which is a total 100% fact, is I guess my paternal great-grandfather was actually Canadian, but he wasn't really Canadian because, <laughs> in one sense because uh, <laughs> uh, he was actually kicked out of the country. <laughs> he was actually arrested so many times and was threatened with jail one last time, so he fled Um fled Canada on a train back in like the 1910s or something like that and eventually got far as far south as Virginia western part of Virginia and was like well I guess I'm far and away far enough away from Canada now so let's get off here and start a family and that's you know that's where I come in eventually that's like the less romantic version of being an expatriate <laughs> no right yeah getting kicked out of Canada for being a chicken thief <laughs> oh that's so funny well now we have points of connection my family's also from Canada so apparently Canadians <laughs> like the Appalachian region yeah go figure you know <laughs> I guess they're both large stretches of empty space. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you're, you know, <laughs> running on the land, you can just hide in some holler somewhere. <laughs> it works out. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. My great-grandfather was a stowaway to Canada, though. Oh, so that's funny. Slightly yeah, different. Opposite yeah, direction, so we were right? escaping to Canada. Yeah, I think it was one of those, you might know about this, they were like one of the British home children mm -hmm. no, I don't. type things. No, I don't. I don't think I'm familiar it's with it. It's a story for another day, but it's basically a bunch of poor kids were stolen or sent, I'm not really sure. And sent to Canada to like work as indentured servants. Oh God! <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> In that theory, story. they were supposed to be getting education and like housing and stuff. It's like the original foster care system, mm -hmm. but uh, much less ethical. I think in practice. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds a little dubious. <laughs> but then I do. Yeah. So slightly different. I mean, that's awesome. I wanted to ask what kind of work your family did because I'm always curious. Now that I'm older, I realized that growing up, I never asked anyone what their jobs were. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. So and now that I'm older, I'm like, what did people do? Where I like, so okay. yeah. So my people, my family has always done just, you know, blue collar labor. Um, so to speak, right? So uh, the great-grandfather that I mentioned worked on the railroad. My grandfather worked on the railroad. Um, other, you know, 
male figures in my life either work for paper mills or railroads, generally speaking. Um, the women in my life, uh, like my grandmother, one of them worked in a pharmacy, you know, like just worked on the desk of a pharmacy. Another one worked in a textile factory. Um, so I'm the first, really essentially the first generation of uh, of that family to, to go to college, <laughs> to get, to get an education beyond high school. Um, and, you know, it's really strange that my grandmother, you know, didn't graduate from high school, um, dropped out when she was 16 ex and she will tell you to this day explicitly to have children. And, uh, yeah, that was her <laughs> dream was to get married and have kids. And then, you know, today, like myself and my brother both have, you know, PhDs. So it's a, you know, very different world, <laughs> very different experience, but they always, you know, supported education and all that. They always wanted something better. And, um, hopefully we're going to do that. <laughs> I like to imagine that we will, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that dissertations basically are babies. They take as much time, and you look just as crappy after spending <laughs> several years feeding them incessantly. Yeah, well, I haven't. Obviously, I'm never gonna personally have a kid, and I don't have children. But if if my dissertation is my child, then I should probably be arrested for child abuse by this point. It's been abandoned, <laughs> <laughs> been completed and abandoned for a couple of years. So. <laughs> You're strange. It's estranged from his father. Oh, such a sad story. Um, that's so funny. So what was it like, I guess, growing up in, because you said you lived in a in a tiny town. Mm -hmm. Is there like a story, if someone ever asked you, you know, what was your childhood like? Is there a story that you think really encapsulates what your childhood felt like? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, well, you know, I, say, I always Thank tell you. people, <laughs> you're welcome. I always tell <laughs> people I'm from Clifton Forge and we moved into Clifton Forge proper when I was like 13 or 14, but we actually lived in a tiny little community named Sharon, like probably a good three or four miles outside. And so, you know, we lived in the middle of the woods. We lived, um, surrounded by just trees, right. <laughs> and no neighbors, um, no internet, uh, antenna television. So we got, you know, CBS and NBC and we got ABC on days when it was clear. <laughs> so there wasn't all. Did you watch Touched by an Angel? I remember that was on one of those. Oh, maybe. No, I didn't watch that. I remember, <laughs> no, my jam was, uh, I figured out, you know, as a kid how to program the VCR, which was like wizardry back then to, Whoa. uh, to record American gladiators every night. <laughs> <laughs> so no, that was, that was my entertainment system. Um, <laughs> No, like, I don't, I'm trying to think of a good story to tell, but probably the best example of growing up where I grew up was, um, I was so desperate when I was about eight or nine years old for just having somebody to play with, right? Like just a friend to like go and play basketball with or, you know, whatever. And one of my friends, I knew where he lived and I knew he lived probably, probably only a half a mile or three quarters of a mile up the road. And so I said, I'm just going to disobey my parents. I'm going to get on my bike and I'm going to ride to his house and we're just going to have fun. <laughs> and, and basically to get <laughs> there, so yeah, to get there though, you had to go down one of those like two lane, super curvy, like super dangerous, like, you know, mountain roads where I think the speed limit is like 55 and everybody goes 70 anyways. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so essentially I go over to his house. It's great. Like I actually, we did actually play video games. I remember we played some NASCAR game on his computer and it was super fun. And then I biked home and probably almost got hit by a couple of trucks <laughs> along the way and essentially got, you know, got back to the house and was grounded <laughs> for about two weeks <laughs> for daring to ride my bike on uh, whatever route road that was so um that's kind of what it was like <laughs> like kind of just weird like isolationism like unless i was at school um it was a couple of a couple of tv stations and whatever video game systems i had and books but and playing in the woods <laughs> that's kind of what it was like until i was about 13. 
Yeah, I mean, kind of is the same. I had a couple of other guests on my house who we all talked about how distance is so much different in rural places. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like just far. Everything is far. <laughs> like one of my friends I interviewed and we're like, oh, yeah, we lived close. And they're like, well, like a 40 minute drive, which was close. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Right? Back yeah. in the day. Like um, when I when we moved to town when I was 13 into Clifton Forge, like I had two friends that actually lived close in my head, which was like five or six blocks away, right? Which was a good <laughs> yeah. 10 or 12 minute walk. But I remember just thinking like, oh my God, this is such a privilege. Like, this is amazing. <laughs> I could walk to my friend's house and we can like just hang out on his porch and it's normal and I won't get in trouble. This is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> this is the best day of my yeah. life. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of systems did you have growing up? Well, I was... This might date you and I'm sorry. No, that's fine. That's fine. A... <laughs> um, date, yeah, like uh, to... I was born in 84, so um, I was just that perfect age where when, kind of, I guess, like, the second big video game wave starting with, like, the Nintendo started off, I was, like, that perfect age to be sucked in. Probably by that marketing, to be honest, but by that fun. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the very first system I got was the original Nintendo, like, an NES. Um, I think I was in kindergarten. It was for, I think that was Christmas of, like, 1989, I think. Um when I got that. And I mean, that was fantastic. And so that's what hooked me. And so since then I had pretty much every, like, that's all I asked for, (laughs) for like birthdays and Christmases. And I was very lucky to have great parents who would provide that for me. But, uh, you know, I had the Nintendo, the Genesis, the super Nintendo, even like the game gear and multiple game boys. And, um, the one thing we didn't have is we didn't have a PC, until mm. probably sixth or seventh grade, somewhere around in there. And that was just because, you know, despite having great parents that provided for me pretty much, you know, anything I re- wanted within reason, um, they were really insistent that computers were explicitly like learning devices. And they were also convinced they were very expensive, even though they weren't as expensive as they thought they were. <laughs> so um, <laughs> even after we got a computer, like it just kind of sat there as like, I always kind of joke jokingly uh, to my dad called it, um, called it the Encarta machine because all we really had on it was, you remember Microsoft Encarta, like the, like the Microsoft's version of an encyclopedia, (laughs) like the, the the PC came preloaded with Encarta and it was, it's like the crappiest Wikipedia. Oh, I know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of the, I'm trying to remember some of it had like animated, probably GIFs or I don't know if GIFs were even a thing then, but little videos that would play sometimes. I remember distinctly when you loaded it up, it would play the like Martin Luther King's, I have a dream speech. So that was the most entertaining thing that, the computer could do so i would just listen to that like probably for like an hour straight <laughs> that's so inspirational for for a child to just listen to MFA on, on loop I guess. and not knowing how to actually play it so i would just close the program and then open it again <laughs> <laughs> oh man computers yeah i i don't think we had one until i was late either i mean we're oddly like very geared towards learning back in the day like even they had like interactive novels and stuff oh, that's i remember cool. those so those could pass even though they were but it was like Berenstein Bears. Oh, yeah. Like <laughs> Berenstein or Berenstein, <laughs> depending on who you are, I guess. But yeah. Yeah. So I had pretty much every system out, you know, I wanted within reason. That was cool. But like most of my experience, like learning about games and even knowing what to ask for, um, that typically came from like friends and relatives just going over to their house and seeing what they had and then getting very jealous. Like I remember being extremely jealous of my cousin who was one year older than me. Um, he had like the gold, um, uh, Zelda one, the original Zelda game he had the Ooh, gold cartridge. Yeah. And I just remember being yeah, yeah. fascinated. <laughs> I was like, that is 
brilliant. I must have this. Like obviously very <laughs> so expensive. Yeah, it was obviously very expensive, but I had to have it. So. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I hadn't even thought of that, but like how you would discover we're so spoiled now with Twitter and like gaming sites. Now I'm trying to remember how I learned about games when I didn't have television. I didn't yeah. have the internet and my friends lived all far away. Well, I thought about that before, you know, we went on here and I was just like racking my brain of, I was really into the video game series Mega Man as a kid. Like I had, you know, Mega Man's like one through six and loved them and played them to death. And I have absolutely no idea how I found out about Mega Man in the first place, right? Um, yeah. And I'm my best guess is, you know, I got the the magazines, right? Like Nintendo Power and all that stuff. Oh yeah. yeah and yeah. I never was allowed to subscribe, but every now and then, once every six months or so, um, we would, you know, I'd be allowed to get one at the grocery store or whatever, like the the Kroger in Clifton Forge. <laughs> if they had one uh and i would just read that thing like over and over and over and over again and like build up in my head like these games that i'm seeing right now on these pages have to be amazing like they wouldn't be in this magazine if they weren't amazing so i have to have at least some of them (laughs) (laughs) and i think that's how it came i really think it was that i mean sometimes going to friend's house and playing whatever game they had but you know I'm I'm sure you experienced this too. I would imagine like the borrowing economy where you would just trade games with each other temporarily <laughs> and trade them back yeah, later. For yeah, sure. so mm-hmm. so you didn't really want to buy the games your friend had cuz you could just get it from your friends, so whatever. <laughs> yeah, oh wow. Yeah, and I remember inheriting it from like people who grew up and like moved away or something like, like weird old games. Oh, that would be um, amazing. I would have been so jealous of that. <laughs> I know, right? Well, since then my mom I love my mom. She's probably listening. So love you, mom. But uh, <laughs> she donated because I forgot to tell her I wanted them, like all of my N64 things. Oh, that's to so tragic. Was, I know. It was, so, it was my fault. I forgot to tell her that it was important. So how would you know? How would you know? Right. I'm very thankful. That's no funny. one knows that the gold Zelda thing is like a big deal <laughs> right. until it's too late. It's so funny. Like my mom actually texted me and she might be listening too. So hey, mom. But um, <laughs> she actually texted me a photo the other day where she had found an old like Tupperware container in our basement that had, I think it was like a broken Game Boy and a broken Xbox in it. <laughs> and she was like texting myself and my brother and my two stepbrothers being like, whose is this? I'm not going to throw it away because I know you guys love this stuff, but please somebody come and get it out of my house <laughs> <laughs> oh man it must be wait is your brother also a historian no he's not he's actually a he works in a business school um but he is a mm, psychologist okay. by trade oh nice i was gonna say if many of you are historians it must be super annoying <laughs> to have <laughs> no that would be infuriating geez no the four yeah no the four brothers it's you can't throw anything away ever <laughs> i know right now it's a historian a psychologist a mechanic and an electrician so that's what we got <laughs> oh that's not bad that's a nice yeah it mix. works it works out well that's pretty good. <laughs> Um, my sister's a marine biologist, but we both publish under J.D. Malandine, so it <laughs> it just looks like there's someone out there who's like very good with science, but also super into oh, That's hilarious. <laughs> I thought about, yeah, that's so funny, because um, my brother's name is my middle name, so my middle name is Matthew, and my brother's name is Matthew, so I thought for a while about kind of trolling him a little bit by publishing at least one article as like J. Matthew Howard, <laughs> <laughs> just to confuse people, just to throw people off a little bit, but nah, I couldn't do that. <laughs> you gotta mess up that Google algorithm mm-hmm. so people can't track you down. <laughs> It keeps you interesting. Although, if you Google your name, by the way, a very famous sports person comes. That up, is true. So. That is true. I'm very thankful for Josh Howard, the former basketball player from De- for the Dallas Mavericks. <laughs> it keeps me a little bit <laughs> invisible on the internet. <laughs> <laughs>
So I know you grew up there and you, you went to college in a lot of places that are are also in Appalachia. Have you ever lived outside of the region? Um, it depends on uh, where you consider Murfreesboro. Uh, I would consider Murfreesboro not Appalachia. So um, for like the four years I was there, I was, you know, adjacent to Appalachia, but not really in Appalachia at all. And then for that, for a horrific nine or 10 months living in Texas, <laughs> I was, <laughs> I was not in Appalachia. Um, although there are a lot of parallels between Southeastern Texas and like the Southern part of West Virginia, like cold country, West Virginia, in the sense that, you know, energy companies dominate society and like ruin the environment. But um, yeah, that's my experience. And um, that's part of the reason I, I ran back <laughs> to the Blue Ridge Mountains was I was like, oh, my God, everything outside of those mountains is just must be horrible if it's like Texas. Just kidding. But <laughs> oh, Texas, <laughs> no offense to Beaumont. I'm sure there's a lot. There are a lot of amazing people there, but um, I'm sorry, I can't live in your city. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, it's totally Texas is not for everyone. Mm -hmm. I think it makes it very clear. Uh <laughs> Texas is very clear that it is not for everyone. That is very true. <laughs> Nine or ten months is not very long. Like, that's a pretty short yeah. adventure. Yeah, it really was. I mean, <laughs> I went down there for a job as a professor, and um, my start date was, I believe, August 1st. And, you know, we moved down there in the middle of July, and I think by about August the 3rd, I, we had decided oh, we're getting out of here. <laughs> <laughs> we are going to get out of here as soon as possible. So, you know, I figured the the right thing to do or the legal thing to do was to finish out the contract that had me going through uh, May. So essentially we were there from July, uh, middle of July through the end of May. <laughs> and then we were just done. See ya. <laughs> That's so intense. Yeah. I, I've experienced some of this just because I, I think different parts of the South uh, are mysterious to itself, <laughs> I guess. So, like, Texas Southerners are curious about uh, the Appalachian South because it seems very different. Did you ever get any interesting or strange responses to, to where you came from? A little bit um, in the sense that – so I think this is an experience that is pretty normal for anybody who is uh, – on a, is, a, is a white man is whenever you are having conversations with other white men they that have bad politics or bad perspectives on the world they generally assume <laughs> that because you're a white guy you also think the same way and in Appalachia that happens sometimes like usually it's only when I'm ever at a bar or something like that and there's you know a guy in a confederate flag trucker hat trying to talk to me about something <laughs> horrific um, but that's very I think that's pretty rare you know I don't think that, that doesn't happen very often but when I was in Texas you know having meetings with people that were about very professional things like museums or academic programs or whatever it was extremely common for them to look at me be like, oh, this guy's from Appalachia. He's got a working class background. He's got to share the same values as me. And they would just launch into, and I'm not painting everybody in Beaumont was like this, but it was extremely common. There were a lot of white men who would, who would immediately launch into, can you believe these people want to have $15 a minimum wage? They don't do enough work for five to hell with them. I'm like, all right, <laughs> step back. Oh, no. Not to mention, you know, anything else about um, race or gender or what have you, but um yeah, that was way more common, <laughs> way, way, way more common. I really think it was them recognizing, saying, oh, this guy's from Appalachia. He must have some type of blue collar values that I do. And then they would just poof, launch into it. 
<laughs> it's like one of those that you wish you could just like push the mute button. <laughs> yeah, or just push the ejector seat, be like, I'm out, I'm out. <laughs> well, you did, I guess. In, in that I know, right? <laughs> just had a long delay on it, I guess, but yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. People's expectations. Yeah, I um, it's so strange because working class itself is pretty broad as a category of who is involved in working class. So it always humors me when someone says working class values. I'm like, which one? <laughs> I mean, they usually mean white working class values, and they usually mean yeah. racist. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's so sad. All my all my liberal working class people out there, we love you. <laughs> Agreed. Um. <laughs> Agreed. And all my socialist friends out there, we love you too. <laughs> We want you to have money, um, or at least health insurance. <laughs> yes, at a minimum. Yeah. Starting, starting, starting low, low expectations. <laughs> Did they ever ask you questions about growing up, like any anything weird about like what your childhood was like that they found surprising? Um, I think the main. The main thing whenever we did talk about, you know, background like that was so many of the people that I met in Texas, um, you know, when I was down there, they were always, it was hurricane season, of course, almost all the time. And obviously we saw what happened with Hurricane Harvey after I left, like very recently. Um, but they were always very nonchalant about things like that. So they would ask me like, oh, what was it like growing up in Appalachia? Didn't you have to worry about, I don't know, something. And I hear that siren in the background. I hope everybody's okay. But anyways, um, <laughs> But they would ask things like that, and I would be honest and be like, well, <laughs> in Allegheny County, the only thing we had to worry about was, you know, rivers being polluted by a paper mill. But other than that, <laughs> I mean, there's nothing. And I remember them being kind of fascinated by that, like kind of this understanding that there's, you know, you don't have to worry about natural disasters and think, kind of being jealous. <laughs> but um, Oh, that's so interesting. I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. So, I mean, Appalachia is like a remarkably... As far as natural disasters go, it's a remarkably safe place, I think. Um, we don't really have to worry about anything. Um, we do have to worry about corporations ruining <laughs> ruining our, our environment. But yeah. Uh, but, yeah, so that was the main difference, you know, was, um, no, you know, they worried about tornadoes and hurricanes and whatever. Um, and, yeah, and we, do, and we don't. <laughs> so. Man, I hadn't even thought of it. Yeah, because earthquakes aren't, aren't a thing either, mm -hmm. really. There's not too many fault lines. Yeah. I remember we used to have tornado drills, but everyone kind of mocked them as oh, like yeah. a thing that, like, if they did exist, they would often skip over valleys, which is where a lot of people lived anyway. <laughs> right. So it wasn't like a... Thing. Yeah, we had to do those too, where you know you had to go out in the hallway and sit in front of your locker and basically like hug your knees until you were a little like ball, <laughs> like a ball of fury that yeah, somehow right. would survive. I don't really know how that would work, but whatever. <laughs> I mean, turn off the lights and like take a nap. I don't remember yeah. <laughs> like what we were doing. It yeah. was like not. It was not ever scary. Yeah. I guess we worried about, and I guess fires. It's not super dry. I'm trying to think if there are any natural disasters in my hometown. Yeah, I mean. Maybe flooding. Yeah, there's some flooding. Like, I know there was a pretty bad flood up here in my part of the world um, about a year ago, maybe a little more than that. Uh, you know, it kind of wrecked, like, White Sulphur Springs, West Virginia and all that. But um, I think, that you know, that's a not terribly common, <laughs> right? That I think that's only happened maybe twice in my lifetime. So it's not something you, like, worry about every season, right? Things like that. Another thing I just thought of, and this might be completely off topic, that they would ask me about. This happened a lot, too was they would ask me about hunting, like about hunting culture in Appalachia. <laughs> and I will admit, you know, you know, growing up in Appalachia as a boy, you're pretty much forced to be part of that <laughs> for a while. So, you know, I went hunting 
um, until I was probably 11 or 12, until I was old enough to say I didn't want to do it anymore. <laughs> like, and nobody would yeah. give me crap for it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I remember them asking questions. They'd be like, so how in the world do you hunt in them mountains? Don't you get tired walking around? Like, stuff like that. Because <laughs> they were used to dra- hunting in essentially like flatland, um, where yeah. you just like drive a four-wheeler to wherever you go and you sit down for a while and i was like yeah you just kind of you just kind of walk around a lot <laughs> there's a lot of mountains it's you know it's i guess it's like combo hike plus hunt yeah yeah pretty much and <laughs> all yeah except way more boring than just hiking so <laughs> yeah that's true I, I remember a lot of um sustainability hunting where i was from it seemed like a lot of people actually hunted mm-hmm. and then ate whatever it was they found yeah yeah it didn't seem like a sport so much as like a cheap way to fill your freezer. I mean, no, you're totally right. Like, I mean, there were years growing up where I don't think we bought any, you know, meat, any protein, whatever at the store, like ever, <laughs> because we had deer meat, like constantly. Um, and I would imagine that was, there was a financial consideration there for my family. I mean, I know there's, I still know people up in Allegheny County, up on the, the Western part of the County that that's how they survive, right? They, they absolutely positively have to kill however many deer a year, um, or whatever else they kill either legal or illegally, uh, just to survive, right? Cause they don't have enough money to, uh, to buy what they need, right? <laughs> they can't survive off of just whatever meager income they have so yeah it's still very alive very much so alive oh man that's so interesting oh man all these tiny natural disasters and hunting <laughs> no, right. no one ever asked me about hunting so i guess maybe there might be <laughs> yeah it's it's the conversation i hate i hate so much <laughs> no one looks at me and be like oh she shot deer as a kid no one. um darn it i know right <laughs> Uh, so rude. Uh, that's so funny. So you've since moved back. Did you continue playing games after you grew up? Oh yeah. I don't know if yeah. you consider yourself grown up. I mean, yet, uh, but... I mean, I don't know if anybody <laughs> considers himself grown up ever. Um, yeah. So playing games that was just one thing that, despite you know, and I don't want to represent him as being some oppressive like patriarchal father. Like he never really liked video games. He thought they were stupid. He thought they were a pretty big waste of time. He did really like the zap, the zapper gun for the NES because I guess, you know, hunting culture, I guess he saw that as like somehow different than holding a controller, like pointing a gun at stuff and killing it. Is the zapper gun the same as the one that you would use with like duck yeah, hunt? Yeah, like duck hunt. And um, nice. the only game, <laughs> and I know this is not what you asked at all, but I know the only game he ever played that I ever witnessed him playing ever was this game called Operation Wolf. Um, there was an arcade version and there was a Nintendo version where I think the game was supposed to be like you were some badass like Rambo character like rolling through prob- probably a proxy for Vietnam just like killing everybody. <laughs> but you used the zapper gun to do that and so he would play the crap out of that. Um, but that was it. That was the only one he would ever play. It's like the OG first person shooter. Yeah, pretty pretty much. And it actually is because they're like shooting at the screen, right? Like, Yeah, so it's neat. Um but yeah, so ever since that Christmas of 1989 or 1990 or whatever year it was, I mean, there probably hasn't been a single day that I haven't played at least some game briefly, you know? Um, and that continued through all the console years, through the PC, when I started started getting into PC gaming, probably when I was like 14 or 15, um, and then finally getting internet and being like awoken to the possibilities of like, holy crap, you can play video games online with people, like, and they've been doing it for a decade. How did I not know this? Um, <laughs> all the way through. I mean, that's honestly, you know, we were just talking about Texas. I mean, that's probably what got me through Texas, like mentally, like keeping my mental health was just, 
playing um, like EverQuest and Overwatch and Dark Souls just for the escapism of of getting away from Texas, at least mentally, for a little while. That's pretty hilarious that Dark Souls was your, <laughs> was the thing that helped your mental health. I mean, yeah. Considering most of what I know of Dark Souls. Is... <laughs> I mean, no, my partner Liz and I would joke that, you know, somehow, in some way, this world of Dark Souls is actually a lot better <laughs> than what we're experiencing right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Any of my Beaumont listeners... You can you feel free to send me an email and I'll send you lots of hearts. <laughs> it's not as bad as I'm. I will representing. drive through and yeah. like take a loving picture. It's not as bad as I'm representing, design. but uh, it just wasn't for me. We'll just leave it at that. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean it's very true. I mean it's one of those weird things to realize when you leave that where you're from is more meaningful to you than what you thought originally. Mm-hmm. I guess is my experience leaving the Appalachian region is I didn't really think of it. I mean, I knew it was important, but I didn't know how important it was until I lived elsewhere. Yeah. And I was like, oh, yeah, like, I love where I'm from, and this is not where I'm from, and therefore I hate it. No fault of where I was. Mm-hmm. It just wasn't <laughs> just wasn't where I was from, so therefore not as good. Yeah, like, I'd, I would imagine that holds true for people from other places, you know, often hear their stories, but they, they seem a lot more prevalent for Appalachia, right? Like, you know, I can remember growing up, and pretty much everybody just couldn't wait until they turned 18 so they could get the heck out of this podunk little town, Clifton Forge, and just move on to somewhere else. But there's so many stories of, you know, people coming home, people returning home after college or after a, a brief job stint, whether it's in Northern Virginia or whatever, and just missing the mountains. Right. And I hear these stories like all across <laughs> Appalachia, whether it's East Kentucky or West Virginia or East Tennessee or whatever. Um, it, they have this call to them. the mountain. I hate kind of the, the flowery language or the, the artistic language people use where they say like the mountains are calling me home and all that stuff. But there is a little bit of truth to that, I think. No, yeah, for real. Folks in Asheville used to joke that there was some sort of mystic. I mean, it sounds very Asheville, North Carolina, if any of you know of Asheville, North Carolina, but there's like, there's some sort of crystal under our city <laughs> that like, if you're not near it for long enough, you like go through withdrawals and stuff. Um, I don't know if like I believe necessarily in that one, but I feel like it's a very apt metaphor. I mean, it sounds like a very good plot for a video game. Like, <laughs> sounds like if you made something that was very Night in the Woods um, style about Asheville's crystal, I think that has potential. <laughs> <laughs> but like, it's life force is draining, and everyone is is losing energy. Everybody's turning in, into a Dark in Souls character, and you have to save them. <laughs> Southern Gothic. <laughs> Perfect. That would be the genre, yeah. Did you play with a lot of folks from back home when you were far away on your on your MMOs? Yeah, yes. Um that was, you know, something that I've always done. Um so to give like the broader picture, most of the people that I was friends with from Clifton Forge that were that was really tight, we just had a really weird um kind of, I don't know, serendipity where almost all of us went to Virginia Tech for undergrad. So it was bizarre. Like this like group of friends kind of maintained itself um from high school to college. And that was cool and that was great. And we, you know, played games together, hung out together. It was fantastic. But then, of course, um, after those four years, uh, we split. You know, there's people who moved to Idaho. People moved to San Francisco. You know, I moved for a little while into West Virginia, all over the place, right? But, you know, we would play games together, like whatever they were. And we kind of jumped around (laughs) in games. That's just kind of how I think some friend circles work. So whether it was EverQuest 1 or EverQuest 2, um, there was a brief, st- they loved World of Warcraft. I hated it, but I would actually like bite the bullet and just play it every now and then just 
to play with friends, right? Um, and that's yeah. kind of how it worked. Or even other games, like more competitive games, like whether it was Counter-Strike or Team Fortress or uh, Overwatch or whatever. So yeah, we maintained um, doing that. I mean, we still have a Discord channel. Uh, that's a relatively recent invention for us, but it's all the same people. Like if you would have teleported in time back to my friend's basement when uh, I was about 17 or 18 years old and you like made a list of names of everybody there and then you looked at the Discord chat um, of who all is in the Discord chat, it's essentially the same people. And that's that's kind of <laughs> weird, right? That's been about 15 years, but it's, but it's all the same people. And the weird thing is, is I wouldn't necessarily say that all of us are actually that close of friends, but we're all like good friends that like can maintain this very common standard stable existence in each other's lives. Um, some of us are closer than others, of course, but it's just kind of just how it is um, for this generation of uh, people who grew up in Clifton Forge and Allegheny County. And, it, and it's all built around kind of nerddom or video gaming or, or whatever, but it's still there and it's always been there. So yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> like I'm having feelings now. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful in one sense, but Shall like, it? I mean, I mean, our Discord channel is called Bacon Palace, so there's nothing really beautiful about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really want bacon. <laughs> I apologize. Preferably shaped like a uh, a house of some kind. <laughs> there needs to be classes that's where so you make gingerbread houses, but out of like pork products. I think that would go very well with people. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take it to my synagogue. It'll be great. Oh God! Super well. <laughs> I need to rethink that idea. Sorry. <laughs> it'll have to be turkey. That works. Um. So, are, have you all been playing the same games since then? Like, are you still playing EverQuest with them, or is it since shifted? I think to... I'm the last holdout on that front. Oh no! Yeah. So, you know, I guess that's just how gaming works. Is over the years you know, sometimes you just go back to your favorite. And at one point, you know, 15 years ago, I mean, there was easily 15 or 20 of us playing EverQuest 1 together. At one point, there was about 15 or 20 of us playing EverQuest 2 or World of Warcraft or all these MMOs. We all really liked MMOs and just kind of playing them together in the same guild. Um, but I readily admit I still play EverQuest 2, sometimes EverQuest 1. And, you know, I try desperately <laughs> to get these friends to be like come on guys they they released a new expansion it's really fun again i swear to god and they just shoot it down every time so <laughs> so i have so many questions right now are there other people playing with you on everquest 2 right now yeah i mean yeah the the servers are surprisingly populated <laughs> that's actually that's incredible yeah. oh my god and like new there's actually new things being there are new things it? i honestly like i think there's a lot of people like me too there are new expansions released every year to still um for everquest one and everquest two it's disgusting <laughs> i don't even oh my god i honestly don't know this how many total, expansions are blowing my mind one. there's over 20 i think um for everquest one it's absurd i mean everquest one's gonna have its uh uh 20th anniversary next year and <laughs> it's still plowing right along gosh that's incredible i mean because it was the first 3d kind of gaming experience wasn't it yeah it was like the first um you know online 3d world like that essentially it was like um, Ultima was really the only other thing that was um, that had the player base. There were other MMOs that existed and all the text-based stuff that existed, but Ultima kind of had the 2D thing that had a large player base, but then EverQuest, like... 3D graphics, you can run around in a world, like talk to people, blew every, you know, a robust chat system that was like blew everybody's mind, but it's still essentially the same game. <laughs> and there's still, you know, thousands and thousands of people playing it 
like right now, um, EverQuest One and EverQuest Two. Um, Do you buy the expansions every year, no. or does it just come with the? Game? I mean, you're supposed to, right? I mean, the challenge for EverQuest is th- this is another crazy thing is you know EverQuest Two has been around almost 15 years, EverQuest One 20, and there's been at least I think three or four different. Um, developers that have owned the game, that have managed the game, right? So very recently, they were just bought by a company that is essentially a Russian like holding firm, <laughs> just is looking to monetize. What? Yeah, Daybreak. Yeah, Daybreak <laughs> is a really. Um, I'll be. I'm comfortable saying they're a very sketchy company. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's very obvious that they are trying to convert to that whole you know microtransaction system. So they're releasing expansions that I don't think are very good, and they're still charging a solid like 40 or 50, maybe not that much. I think it's a little bit closer to 20 or 30. I don't even know because I haven't bought the last three or four. Um, <laughs> they're still charging full price for, for expansions for not much. But what they really get get money from, and this is why I still play, and I think most people do this, is they have made new servers that attempt to recreate what the game was like when the game came out rather than the modern experience, right? So that means, like, they make a new server that is, in theory, for EverQuest 2, in theory, exactly like the game was in 2004 <laughs> for, like, the ultimate nostalgia. It's cool. So um, so that's, like, what I like to play on. Like, you know, there's been so many changes of the game that I don't really like, but I still really love that same stupid game I was playing <laughs> back in 2004 <laughs> and 2005 and 2006. Um, and so that's where I play with, like, a lot of other like-minded people, um, none of whom I have any idea who they are or know them in real life, but uh, but it works out, and I really enjoy that. Um, I have theories as to why. I don't really know why I enjoy it so much, <laughs> but I do, and it keeps me around, and I stick with it, so yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. I mean, have you seen... I'm trying to go through all my, my game studies memory here, and I feel like I haven't seen actually that much work done on EverQuest, which now I'm like totally blown away that I haven't seen. <laughs> A million things on it. Have you seen much like interest in researching it? Yeah, there's there's very little. There is some out there though. So there was an article, um, probably in like 2009 or something like 2010, maybe, uh, by a guy named Eric Hayo. Um, Hayo. I have no idea how to pronounce his name. I'm sorry, uh, Eric. <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it was him, and he had a co-author, and I don't remember the co-author's name. But this is going to get philosophical for a second, but they were looking at EverQuest and they were looking at the space in which the digital space, the world, and trying to ask this question, like, is this place real or not? (laughs) Right? Like, does it constitute, like, all the definitions, like, philosophically speaking, like, when we say something is real, it's a place, it exists, like, does a digital world qualify? as that and they ultimately concluded like looking at the geography like yes yes it does it has its own it's a lore but it has its own history um players interact with the environment people interact with the environment and there are memories that are formed in real living human beings that are based on this digital world um and so yes it is a place but that's really the only research i know of and that's kind of why um shameless plug a little bit why I got a little bit interested in doing research on EverQuest and EverQuest 2 and kind of thinking about all right, these places are real. Um, there's some really complicated things going on with memory and nostalgia and all that stuff happening here. And so that's why I started interviewing people. I started like essentially gathering oral histories from MMO players and asking them um, about the world's 
that they live in at least part-time because we all live on earth i think <laughs> but um but whatever world they live in whether it's norath from eq1 or norath from eq2 or azeroth from world of warcraft or uh what's ultima britannia or however you say it from ultima um so just asking them these questions about what these places mean to them um and seeing what comes out of it um and it's been neat it was it was neat interviewing people i interviewed about i don't know 25 people or so just about what they think about it and I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe you'll see something at Game Studies from me about <laughs> yes. request. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Shamelessly, we'll we'll retweet it constantly. I mean, because I I've, I've done my own research with with memory and nostalgia because I'm also deeply fascinated by why exactly I feel so strongly about my memories of these digital places. With the interviews mm -hmm. you did, were they with real life folks or were they all like anonymous digital interviews just with the avatars in game? It was um, a mixture. So that's like kind of a caveat I have where I approach these like in a very oral history way. But I actually thought about that. I was like, would it make more sense to interview people kind of like what we're how we're talking right now, like, you know, voices and real people having a discussion or because when you play EverQuest 1 or EverQuest 2 or whatever, um, all of your discussions with people is happening like on they're happening on the keyboard and they're happening in the chat box. So I was thinking, you know, maybe it would make more sense to interview people using the medium within which they actually communicate with other people, <laughs> right? Yeah, so, for sure. So that's how I started doing it, um, was by just talking to people in-game. And that's a little bit unwieldy. Like, you can't, like, for example, you can't highlight and copy-paste text <laughs> out of uh, out of the client and into, oh, I mean, you no. probably can. You can probably strip it out through some type of uh, algorithm, but I don't really want to do that. <laughs> so um, usually we would talk for a while in-game, um, see what they had to say, and then we would... Uh, converse either via email or like a G chat or something like that. Um, but it was usually text based. Like I think I did two or three, three phone interviews. Um, but then everything else was, uh, was text based. And I think that worked. <laughs> I really think it worked because people were comfortable, um, typing about EverQuest. It's a lot of the times it's easier for them just to type out stories because they're so used to typing out the same story to, <laughs> to other people yeah i so mean it worked out i'm thinking of like with ethnography you usually are always doing it in the language of the place that you're in because there's so much about understanding and perception tied up with language and i think mm -hmm. we don't think of it but like digital spaces have their own language that are unique and specific oh yeah <laughs> yeah absolutely so um i mean it was one of those studies too where or one of those things too where uh I was trying to take quotes out, right? So I was trying to strip quotes out of these interviews for potential use in an article. And I was finding that I was having to use like the square brackets to explain like every other word <laughs> that people were using in these quotes. It's like one of those fantasy novels where like the first four pages are just like definitions of like words. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I mean, yes, exactly. Because like, and it's, it's difficult to relay to people like just them saying a very basic sentence about the very basic mechanics of the game and of the interactions means absolutely nothing <laughs> to other people, right? I mean, I had one interview where, um, I forget the exact quote, but it essentially said something like, and then a high-level person came past me and threw me a set of banded armor. And I knew what the <laughs> hell that meant. <laughs> But nobody's going to know what that means. That doesn't mean anything to anybody. And I had to explain, oh, that's actually a very nice thing. That our armor is very useful to someone. It's very high. You know, at the time, it was considered high level. Like, that was a very amazing sign of niceness and friendship. But, like... It's very altruistic. Yeah. Yeah. It's very hard to convey, though. So, yes, yeah, so it's, it's been a cool project. We'll see where it goes. Um, 
well, I'll just say like the one thing that I did learn from it that I think is really neat is that um, almost everybody, when I interviewed them, I was asking them questions about their personal feelings or thoughts when it came to the world, whether it places or stories or whatever. Almost everybody, something like 90% of the people who responded, um, when they answered it, they answered it in terms of we, not I. They told everything as like a collective, um, even though they were answering it as an individual. And I think that means something. Yeah, I think that means something. I think that is some type of acknowledgement that they saw this like experience in gaming worlds as an inherently group experience, even though it's still just their experience. And I'm not sure what that means, but I think it means something. Do you find, because you also do sports history. Is that mm-hmm. is that correct? Do you find a similar kind of language when people are talking about sports in a more traditional physical way of playing? The funny thing is, is like you often see that when people are talking about fandom ah. and like people are interviewing people about being fans of teams or sporting culture that surrounds a club. But when you're actually seeing people interview the athletes themselves, I mean, athletes are notoriously egotistical. So they're always, <laughs> are always saying things in terms of like, I, like I did this, even though it's like, come on, man, like you were on a soccer team. There were 10 other people <laughs> that had something to do with that. But yeah, yeah, there is some type of a parallel, but not really, right? It's like this whole participant thing. Like they are participating in it, but they are seeing it as more I don't know. I don't know why, but I think there might be an answer somewhere. We'll see. Now I'm I'm gonna go. I'm making a stretch. Are you ready? Uh, we'll see it. if I can like <laughs> convey this stretch question appropriately. But in thinking about the fact that you left Appalachia and came back, feeling like this need to be back. And then kind of EverQuest is a place that I'm assuming people have left and then have come back. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Is there any, I guess, similarities in your mind between being home in the region of Appalachia and being home in the region of Norath? Is it Norath? Did I say that right? Yeah. I have no no idea if it's Norath or Norath. I have no idea. (laughs) (laughs) I guess it's all text chat, so no one knows. Yeah, it's like when you grew up in Appalachia and you like read fantasy novels like Lord of the Rings and you have no basis of like comparison for pronunciation because you don't know anybody else who's read those books. So you just wing it with whatever you know. (laughs) It's got to be better than in my interview with Kentucky Route Zero. I for some reason decided Marquez was going to be Marquis, which was decidedly (laughs) wrong. So at least this one is a fantasy place and not like an actual name that everyone knows. (laughs) I like (laughs) it. Um but yeah, back to your question about like home, essentially about home and returning home. Um, there is like some type of a power. And, and I think that's why like um, Eric Hayo's article was like so on point. Was it like, yeah, these digital worlds are absolutely places, but I would go even further and say they're not only places that like some of them can constitute like a type of home for some individuals for whatever reason. I'm not sure why, what makes something a home or not a home, but it exists. and. Appalachia has that power to like bring people home and you think of your home and it doesn't have to be a town or a place or a, or a structure or whatever, but it is more of a concept, right? Um, and I think that's a lot of the time how EverQuest functions for people is that a lot of the time it was their first, for me, um, it was my first experience really connecting with a large internet community, essentially of strangers, right? Essentially of people who have no idea who they are that are from all, literally all around the world. And that's the, but I still had real life friends there too. And so 
there's a lot of other people who think that way. So I think there is that like connection. I don't think that's a stretch at all. <laughs> um, I think that it is this like building a place, this building of home, this building of memory um, that has that nostalgic tinge to it that creates like empathy and emotion and all of that. I think the one big difference though is there's a, an acknowledgement with people who play video games and play online video games that these worlds are not going to exist forever. The servers are going to shut down someday, right? And the world is going to expire. <laughs> it's yeah. going to go away. It's very precarious as a place. Yeah, especially when your favorite game is owned by like a Russian holding company. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, that's a problem. Um, so it's this melancholy, too. There's like a different type of melancholy that exists uh, with these video game homes. This recognition that there is absolutely zero possibility of owning your home in the same way that there is possible. You know, if I actually had money, uh, you know, I could buy some land or buy a house in Appalachia <laughs> and make, make a home. Um but that's, you know, it's neither here nor there for poor people like me. But um, but for video games, it doesn't really work that way unless you are a fantastic coder and you can do something like the Project 1999, like, independent fan server of EverQuest. Um, but it still requires people. <laughs> it still requires, like, a community to make it work, to make it function. So, yeah, so it's this, this recognition of, like, digital mortality that <laughs> is very depressing but uplifting at the same time, <laughs> in my opinion. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, thinking about the similarities between – what's the word I'm looking for? It's not disenfranchised. That's not the word I'm looking for. But this feeling of – it's kind of melancholy over not having control over this space that means so much to you that you've spent so mm -hmm. much time building up, both in Appalachia and – because I feel like often there's this feeling of like I, we don't have as much control over what's happening yeah. as we would like, but also in these games where we're kind of at the whim of <laughs> whoever's <laughs> in charge of like – you know, making these, these spaces. Yeah. I think there is, I think you have actually hit on something where there is a parallel between, you know, land ownership. And this is, this does sound like a stretch. And I think if I said this to some guy or some woman at a bar, they would laugh me out of the room. But if I, you know, some parallel between like the impetus for something like an Appalachian land study that is happening right now, we're studying what corporations own our land and what they're doing with it versus um, MMOs and, massive corporations like daybreak or blizzard um essentially owning everything and you have no power um there's this lack of power to do anything about it <laughs> to to affect change that you want to see or affect stability that you want to see um over the space that you care about you know uh so beautiful i'm so excited <laughs> by this connection now <laughs> uh, i love it now we'll I, see <laughs> yeah well, this is what podcasts are for to have conversations that people would laugh at you in bars <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> exactly we can't hear you laughing because this is pre-recorded so ha, <laughs> in your face ah oh, that's so i mean i'm thinking of all the time eminent domain in appalachia right is a huge thing like i remember people yeah, often yes. getting taken for highways or whatever and i know that's it's even worse in places that had coal companies where space is even more kind of contested and affected by mm -hmm. by not not natural disasters decidedly unnatural right, right. disasters i mean hell there's lawsuits going on right now just uh in the courthouse like right up the street from me about um pipelines right about dominion power in virginia uh imminent domaining people's land so they can build a completely unnecessary pipeline um across the entire state so yeah so it's still very much a very alive a very alive thing to worry about and be concerned about so another fight another another century another fight i guess right well, same fight yeah right we'll start with everquest too see what we can yeah we'll do that small we'll scale see what happens <laughs> so are, yeah. are there any other games that that really remind you of home 
Oh, that reminded me of home. Um, trying to think, you know, when I play games personally, it, it is, it is an escapism thing. And I think that is why I have this weird attachment to EverQuest is it might be the only one that does remind me of home or that nostalgic period or of my life or, or whatever it is. Um, and I should also say it's not just EverQuest. It's actually a specific part of EverQuest, <laughs> <laughs> which is, you know, not to get too, haha in the trees you'll see in a minute um it's a continent in everquest called fadewer which is like forests and like mountains and hills and things like that and i really like it it's a cool chill little place it's my favorite location um but other games i mean other games do like hit at that nostalgia sometimes um but ultimately no like not really (laughs) that that one particular mmo series is the one that really touches at something that is like inherently like home-based nostalgia-based like place-based that other ones just don't hit um other ones you know whether i'm playing dark souls or cuphead or fifa or whatever they're just a challenge right they're just they're just a game they're just fun a lot of the time um but this other one it's something different i think it's something special um it's something very unique i mean and what other games are you gonna see what other types of games are you gonna see like memorials to people who tragically pass away in real life and they actually get built built up as memorials in the game um, dedicated to people i think there's a very real connection between the spatial world we live in and the digital world um that you just don't see anywhere else and i think that attaches again to home for me what were the the monuments that who, who's been memorialized in everquest oh um everquest I don't really know of, oh, there is one in EverQuest. I just remembered one. Um, So this is, again, a very sad story because, I mean, it involves death. But um, there was a a kid, like a really young boy, and he went by the name, he played a little character that looked like a frog, and he went by the name Ribbit Ribbit (laughs) was his name, which is a very adorable name. But um, he was very sick, and I'm not sure what was wrong with him, but he did, like, tragically pass away. Um, But before he did, uh, his mom came into the into the forums, uh, the EverQuest two forums, and essentially told everybody, "Hey, Ribbit Ribbit is my son. Um, he doesn't have much longer to live. Just wanted to let you all know this." And so I think this is like a fantastic, like touching story that makes me feel kind of like emotional about it. Um, so when she came in there, like all these players that knew who Ribbit Ribbit was, like got together. They said, "We need to do something for this kid." And so they basically got together and they actually got the company. This is before the Russian holding company took over. This is when it was Sony. Um, Sony came out with the players and they all basically built a space in the game because you can, you can make homes right in the game. Um, they basically built a home specifically for Ribbit Ribbit as like, like it was a gift to him for him to have, for him to essentially live in. But then it became, after he passed away, uh, it became like this space where Ribbit Ribbit could be remembered, right? Where he people could physically, or not physically, digitally go to this space and remember him, right? And like celebrate his life and his memory and things like that. Um, there is a day, I don't know if they still do it or not, but as of about five years ago, uh, there was a day every year that they had unofficially, it was Ribbit Ribbit Day, where everybody would go to this Ribbit Ribbit home um, and just remember and tell stories and hang out. Um, and I think that's really amazing and cool. Like this kind of emergent memorialization that happened in a digital space. And when I talk about like, you know, the melancholy about these worlds going away, it's not just the game going away. It's things like that, right? It's this uh, monument that for, I have no idea if, if she even knows about it, but I would imagine the mother knows about it. It means something to her. Right. Yeah. And then when the servers shut down, 
I mean, it's gone. <laughs> and it's gone forever. Um, and that's really sad. <laughs> in a world where we are super concerned about monuments and memorials and things like that existing in physical space, it really bums me out that digital space, um, it should matter more. <laughs> it should absolutely matter more to people. So that's one example. Yeah, it's one example. It's very sad. <laughs> I mean, that's a beautiful thing. And now I'm thinking about, um, I mean, over the years, right, there's all these efforts to, I mean, you would know the actual words for this because you're a historian, but the thing where they like say this is a historical space, we're going to try to keep it. Um, oh, like, yeah, like adding it to the National Register or a landmark yeah. or something like that. So I'm wondering yeah, how yeah. far away we are from like having spaces in a national registry. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe that's silly. No, but I wonder no, if that's no, ever really like a thing that could happen. I mean, I don't know. Um, considering, you know, it's corporate space owned on a server. But I think you might have hit on something. Maybe that's a good way to do a little bit of a little bit of digital activism. <laughs> Create a <laughs> national register of digital historic places. I have no idea what that would even be. But that is actually like kind of rad because you know I, I did a like a brief survey, like kind of browsing through all the different MMOs to see like what memorials are out there, and there are so many. <laughs> there are so 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 many, and some of them are fan created, some of them are company created, some of them weren't even set up to be memorials in the first place, and they became memorials like just kind of through culture, right? Like you know, pe people essentially live and operate in a space for so long, it just transforms, right? So yeah, it's fascinating. <laughs> and I think maybe you're onto something. Maybe we need to start that. <laughs> Was it Robin Williams had a memorial in World of Warcraft? Is that right? Oh probably I mean yeah, I probably say there I don't know that one. Something like that. But yeah, I mean you're you're right. There are these spaces that are meaningful and have kind of cultural and personal significance to mm -hmm. to so yeah. many of our lives. Like I'm thinking of um I mean, EverQuest is one. I mean, people talk about it, but even World of Warcraft, I imagine there are definitely mm -hmm. spaces in there that have affected oh, yeah. tens of thousands of people. Yeah, there's like a Wikipedia page, or maybe not Wikipedia, but like Blizzardpedia or whatever it's called, um, page just for World of Warcraft memorials. There's like 50 of them, <laughs> like just in World of Warcraft. That's crazy to me. Um, yeah, I was when you said Robin Williams, I was thinking like Gary Gygax, um, when he passed away, the guy who um, essentially invented Dungeons and Dragons, when he passed away, there was a lot of like voice recordings in Dungeons and Dragons online that Gary Gygax had recorded himself right? It was his voice in the game. Oh. And so there were these rumors that kind of floated around a couple of years after he died that the company, I forget the developer, but the company was talking about redoing those quests and like redoing that. And so Gygax's voice wouldn't be in the game anymore. And fans blew up. Like, oh, they wow. absolutely blew up. And what essentially is like a grassroots preservation movement, right? <laughs> in a lot of ways um, to be like, no, you can't change these. Gygax's voice has to stay in Dungeons and Dragons forever. I have no idea if it's still there or not, but as of... <laughs> <laughs> but as of like 2012, it was so. <laughs> so yeah, it's another example of like you know, it can be done. Digital preservation can be done. It just, I think it takes it would take some work. Maybe maybe a national register curated by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Let me let me get on that. It just needs lots of funding and some political clout. But I think I yeah, can... <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> I've got a whole weekend to start on it though, so it should be fun. <laughs> well, I guess since we're we're ending. Not on melancholy, but on thinking about the intertwined nature of melancholy and hopefulness. Is there anything about the combination of Appalachian video games that you're particularly hopeful for? Oh well, it's um I try not to be a negative person. I do I am actually very very optimistic and very hopeful <laughs> <laughs> about the world. Um I'm really hopeful that because there are, there are they exist, that there's a lot of games out there in the world that have um kind of 
social justice or economic justice in mind. And I'm thinking of things like Night in the Woods or games like, um, for me as a historian, games like Papers, Please, um, that kind of wake you up to, to certain things that are going on in the world. And I have hope that there's already been so much media production that is kind of, you know, awoken people to the kind of the plight of Appalachia, Appalachian economic inequality, right? Whether it's a movie like Mate One, right? Or um, it's, you know, the tons of books that exist or, or what have you, or the music that exists. I think that that's one thing I'm very hopeful for is there will be more games like Night in the Woods or other ones not related to Appalachia that will kind of wake people up to this, this, these issues of land ownership and um, the inequalities of capitalism uh, and things like that, that are really problematic um, in Appalachia as a region, or even just within certain parts of Appalachia. That's one thing I'm hopeful for. And I really think that as video games have democratized so much in the past, like 10 years or so, um, just with the sheer quantity of indie developers out there, I really think we're going to see some really great stuff um, that comes out uh, that lets you, I don't know, it could be something that's more about more nuanced, like Night in the Woods, or it could be something where you just, I don't know, blow up coal, coal barons' houses. <laughs> I don't know what you do. <laughs> but it could be any of those things, and I'm hopeful for that. <laughs> I think it's a good thing to look forward to. <laughs> oh, that's amazing. Yeah, there was a game that came out recently. It was, um, I can't remember if it was made by an indigenous lady or if it was just about that issue, but it, like, used like a thunderbird of some kind and it was blowing up oil rigs on the ocean or something like that. <laughs> and I remember there was a blowback because people were saying that it was trying to incite violence against oil rigs, which to me was like bananas. I was like, where are we going to get a giant thunderbird? I was about to say, <laughs> how many millions would it take to like build a, a thunderbird esque <laughs> like d- destruction this vehicle? This is not a how to yeah. manual for oil rig explosion. Like, this is I not, know, right? No good. Well, yeah. awesome. Thank you. Is there anything I guess before before we sign off that you're you're really dying to say or want people to think about um, before we say goodbye? Oh, I don't think so. Just um, keep playing EverQuest. Keep ble- <laughs> keep believing in Appalachia <laughs> all those things just keep doing it I want to end this on like don't stop believing I'll play that as my exit song and then hopefully I have to pay no royalties <laughs> Probably I that. love it I love it oh, so good. awesome well thank you so much for coming out this has been um, actually super amazing I'm so excited to continue this discussion about the relationship between memory and place and what kind of digital spaces are teaching us about maybe our connection to, to real world physical places. Yeah. This is yeah, quite me too. exciting. <laughs> Glad you like it. Yeah. Um, and should I tell anyone if they play EverQuest 2 that they should reach out to you? Oh, feel free. Um, I have like a very, very embarrassing EverQuest names. Um, but you can feel free if you ever see somebody named Buttzilla. <laughs> and that's named after a Simpsons episode. It's a Simpsons <laughs> reference. It's nothing perverse. <laughs> Feel free to say hello. Oh, awesome. I will put that down in the show notes down below in case none of y'all know how to spell Buttzilla. Um, I'm assuming two T's and two L's. Yes, yes, exactly. It sounds. Have you seen, it's the episode where they make the hot air balloon out of Skinner called Big Butt Skinner. I don't know. It's funny. It's funny in context, I, I promise. I will also link to that episode. I'm sure I can find it on YouTube. I'll just Probably. fill my show notes with weird... 90s pop culture references. Yeah, exactly. Throw in some King of the Hill and we'll be complete. It'll be good. (laughs) Perfect. Awesome. Well, thank you everyone for joining us and have a good day, Josh. Yeah, thank you so much. Take care. Bye.